This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Josh Voorhees writes about politics for Slate. He says, if you want to understand who Beto O'Rourke is as a politician, all you have to do is look at how he rolled out his presidential campaign. Well, Beto went about it kind of in, in, in an orthodox way, which I guess is, you know, kind of right on brand. He went from, you know, months of, of playing the, I don't know, maybe I'm still thinking about it. And then two weeks ago, he says, I've made a decision, but I'm not ready to share it, which is kind of weird. Then O'Rourke started popping up in public. He went to a screening of a documentary about his failed bid for Senate, but he refused to answer questions about whether he was running in 2020. And then all of a sudden Wednesday, it was just bam, it, it happened. Uh, he had the glossy Vanity Fair cover story come out, which clearly he was waiting for. But then as opposed to waiting to the next day for the announcement, he classically stepped on a on what would have been a very polished rollout by sending a text message to a local uh, TV station. Uh, I don't know if it was on purpose confirming, but effectively confirming he was going to run. But again, that's kind of on on brand for Beto. His, his whole thing is not having poll testing and not having focus groups. Kind of the rough edge is kind of that, you know, grungy 90s millennial that he is that kind of is how he intentionally runs. So it's tough to know what's an accident and what's not. Kind of the, the bugs are the features and the features are the bugs with Beto. After O'Rourke declared he was in the race, it was as if a simmering Beto backlash was turned up to full boil. Some people rolled their eyes at how he announced his candidacy while sitting next to his adoring, nine-years-younger wife. Others scoffed at the weeks he spent soul-searching and blogging before finally declaring himself a candidate. But Josh looked at something else. His launch website, citing kind of classic form, is, you know, this beautifully well-designed website. It has a selling t-shirts. It has a, it's written in English and Spanish, and yet there are no actual policy proposals on it. That he's got the image taken care of, but perhaps the details, we're going to have to wait a little bit if, if we'll get them at all. Today, Josh is going to talk about his own journey, from Beto fever to Beto frustrated. The Democratic field is full of candidates who stand for something. Is anyone hungry for a candidate who doesn't really say what he stands for? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When did you first hear about him? 
Like, I mean, you're a political reporter. You've done this for a long time. Like, when was the first time you heard someone say, oh, this Beto O'Rourke campaign is interesting? And the first time I really paid attention to him was in the lead up to the the primaries. Texas had, I think it was the first, if not the second, I think the first uh, primary of the cycle last year, which I think also kind of launched his brand a little bit early. Oddly, his primary night was a little bit underwhelming, given kind of the local buzz he had. But then from there, he he kind of just built and built. Some of it, I think, was like almost wishful thinking from kind of the, the larger online left and, and from Democrats. And that's one, because Texas was this dream and is this dream for Democrats for so long. But more importantly, Ted Cruz is just... With the exception of Donald Trump, I can't think of a, of a national Republican that when you say the name that you can just see people, uh, a liberal's face react and cringe than, than the name Ted Cruz. I, I wonder, did you kind of catch Beto fever as part of this? I mean, I certainly caught caught a little bit of it. I mean, he is he is a charming, charismatic guy. I mean, the clip that I think probably most people saw was his uh, defending of the NFL players taking a knee during the anthem. He gave a very, you know, impassioned, seemed off the cuff kind of two minute answer about about what that meant and kind of the the right to protest and the freedom of speech and, and, and kind of tied it to his larger uplifting vision of America. While the eyes of this country are watching these games, they take a knee to bring our attention and our focus to this problem to ensure that we fix it. That is why they are doing it. And I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your life. It seems anyone with that many viral moments, you think he's perhaps creating them. But then even this one moment that that went incredibly viral, it wasn't just a 15 second soundbite. It was kind of this long spiel that he built up to. And it felt as though, he managed to convey both that he had thought about this issue and cared about it and understood it, but at the same time that he hadn't rehearsed it, which again, I'm not saying that's what actually was the case, but that is how it read. And I think that's why it grabbed so many people. Was there a moment you turned? Like, was there a moment your opinion changed or there was something you found in Beto O'Rourke's background where you're like, oh, I need to reconsider my thinking about this guy? This has been, yeah, I mean, it was, it's been a, been kind of a, a long process for me on this. Again, like I, I saw the, I watched the Senate campaign. He, he was exciting. I talked to some of my family members about him. They were too excited about it. They were asking about this, this Beto guy after the election. I had some a dinner with a political science professor and he, we, we got to talking and, and we got kind of caught up in this idea of, or the promise of Beto's campaigning ability, this idea that he draws crowds, this idea that it was really easy to, to game it out and be like, wow, Beto is one of the few people that could get in early and change the race or could get in late and change the race. He has this energy. He has this excitement. He has this small donor base. Yeah, I could see it. I, this could really be, yeah, maybe Beto 2020. But then I stopped and I kind of pulled back and to be like, okay, well, maybe let's not just focus on winning. Like, what would we get with that win? And, and then it was difficult to, to know, to see, like, does Beto line up with my personal policies? preferences. I don't know because I don't know where Beto stands on those. Yeah, it's funny. In the Vanity Fair article that sort of announced Beto O'Rourke's candidacy for president, he has this quote in there where he says, you know, you've got to give people something to be for. It cannot be who we are against. But I'm wondering if he's gotten any better at articulating what he's for. 
I think Beto and Beto's supporters would tell you that like what he's for, that read is the idea that he's like, it's a similar Obama-esque kind of for hope and change, but then his, his critics will tell you that he's not actually for any specific policies so far. So he's not offering policy specifics, but he's not claiming to, and his supporters aren't claiming he is. They're excited about this idea of a Beto almost as this vessel, and you're for Beto, and you're for optimism, and you're for general progressive values, keyword there is general, as opposed to just being against Trump is kind of his framing. I don't know how well that that actually holds up or it, it lasts in, in the larger specific conversation about giving giving people things to be for when it comes to the Democratic primary. And, and he manages to kind of skirt those by wrapping it all in, in you can be for this general idea as opposed to being for specific ones. I just wonder, can, can like we tick off like, what do we know about Beto O'Rourke from his time in Congress and his time in El Paso? Um, his, his record was, you know, traditionally more conservative than you would expect. I think 538 has looked at the numbers and it was the idea of like he he's in El Paso. His district is is, is pretty blue and, and he voted more often uh, with Republicans than you would kind of expect statistically. I think more troubling to me than than his votes in, in Congress were here he is, you know, a border district congressman who, who seems to truly care about immigration and, and be more compassionate on the issue than I've seen from a lot of politicians and able to speak to that. And I think that comes from his experience of living and growing up uh, along the border. And yet when it came time for bipartisan immigration discussions, he seems to have been missing. I mean, he was young, it would have been difficult for him to get in there, but at the same time, I haven't heard any story or any example of him, him leading or trying to push that debate one way or the other. He was he was largely absent from it. And we're going to need a president to help lead that debate and help lead that conversation. And, and right now, he seems more interested in, in taking part in that conversation than, than taking a firm stance in that conversation. Can you just give me an example of what Beto's saying about the border now that he's joining the race? There is, uh, he did an interview with the Washington Post uh, back in January, which I thought was just a very telling moment. So on, on immigration, for instance, he had a, a very concrete policy proposal, or it felt like it. It was, uh, I think, a day or two after he held the counter rally in El Paso when Donald Trump was there doing his, you know, fear-mongering spiel about the wall. And, and Beto suggests that, you know, in his perfect world, if he could, he would actually remove some of the border in places like El Paso. The idea that the, the, the border wall is, is the danger, it's actually, it's leading to death and suffering. And there's a powerful stance. I would love to see him, him flesh that out, but it, it quickly disappeared from what he was openly discussing in a couple of weeks later, he put out his supporters would call it, you know, a, a detailed 10 point plan. But really, it was it was 10 ideas. Ideas was his word of, of how they could solve the immigration debate. And it very much was the, was kind of talking in generics and wondering aloud about even when he gets specific, it's never to say specifically, I support this. It's to say, how about this specific? Let's talk about it. I watched Beto's campaign video, the one where he announces his candidacy on the couch with his wife. Mm hmm. I was really struck by the fact that his campaign looks really untraditional, but he looks really traditional. It, it really was striking that the, there was a whole video with his wife just kind of gazing at him. Amy and I are happy to share with you that I'm running to serve you as the next president of the United States of America. And it made me wonder, you know, we have a bunch of women running for president. Like, is it a problem that this guy might steal the thunder when he really looks 
so much like what a lot of the Democratic Party is trying to like break down and change right now. I mean, I would say I personally think that it is a problem. Yes, I think that there's an argument to be made. If there's ever a time to get out of the way as a white dude, you know, now's a pretty good time to do it, especially if you can't offer a concrete, specific reason why you're running. My my biggest fear during this whole thing is like, and this also is one that I think Joe Biden creates some problems with as well, is this idea that we need to there needs to be, you know, an honest and awkward conversation about race. This isn't new. This has always been the thing, but specifically with the Democratic Party. And as we talk about balancing whether it's all about class or what role race plays in things and gender, this is an awkward and difficult conversation. And and Beto and and Biden are ways that they don't have to have it. It's this generality of a, of a well-meaning white guy that that promises to you know to look out for everyone. You know, history suggests. That's probably not going to happen. It's hard because it's like, as you said, Beto's most well known for that video where he's really addressing race head on and sort of using all the right language and, you know, getting people excited about him. Are you just saying that's just not enough? Well, I, I'm not. I, I For me personally, I think if he, if he could pair that with some specific things other people aren't offering, Okay, then, then now you have my attention. But I mean, like, as far as this this sweeping, uplifting rhetoric, right? Beto's not the only one when making it. I mean, Cory Booker would be be an obvious example here, and he specifically has, you know, some some positive proposals that are unique and interesting. He has his baby bonds proposal, which you know you can debate the merits of it, but here he is trying to get creative and use a concrete example of how to fix the problems he's talking about, and that doesn't mean that everyone should vote for Cory Booker over Beto O'Rourke. It just means that if Beto O'Rourke really wants to truly engage in this conversation and move it forward, he should come with some ideas of his own. You got a lot of reaction when you wrote about Beto O'Rourke online. And I was struck by the fact that a lot of the reaction came from folks who supported Obama and worked with Obama, like Neera Tandon, who worked in the Obama administration, sort of critiquing your take and saying, you know, we shouldn't be critiquing Beto in this way right now. I I just wonder what you took from that. Well, I mean, I I think some of it speaks to um, this idea, this worry on the Democrats that somehow 2020 is going to turn into, you know, a circular firing squad and Donald Trump is going to be left standing. And again, I think that that is a, a fair and natural impulse and worry with kind of the response that I got a lot. One kind of natural comparison was, well, Barack Obama in in 2008 was also a man who talked in generalities and who also was a man without a very long track record before he got in. And I guess I guess my counter to that was this idea of, okay, but one, Barack Obama was a little bit more well-established. I mean, he was a senator. We knew more about him. His book was certainly more detailed than, than Beto's one book. But on top of that, there was a reason for him to be in the race. And, and that reason was that there wasn't a deep field. It was a pretty shallow field. And he was the candidate running first and foremost on this idea of the Iraq war was wrong. And he was running against Hillary Clinton, someone who supported the Iraq war. That is a clear and necessary divide within the back. 2008 primary that moved the party forward and that I think voters had a, had had needed a choice between those two things. Beto's introduction into this field doesn't change the equation in any way I can see other than he is this, you know, charismatic, charming vessel for, for hope. Josh Voorhees, thank you so much for talking to me about your article. Thanks for having me. 
Josh Voorhees is a senior writer here at Slate. His article is called Beto 2020 Has No Reason to Exist. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. I want to take a second and thank our listeners from TuneIn. They picked up What Next as a featured show for the past couple of weeks. We are so grateful. Thank you, guys.